0: God, grant me the serenity to accept the things, the courage, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, in some cultures, after lunch, people lie down for two hours. And that's right. I just want you to know that the, the Italians, the Spanish, the Chinese, and the Mexicans have that right. Um, we're afraid we'll miss something, so we stay awake and get cranky and dangerous by 3 p.m. I want to say a couple of simple things about the steps in general. Um, They come out of people's experience. here are the steps we took. They come out of people's experience. Sometimes when you hear them talked about, it sounds like God faxed them, you know, or... or, um, But they come out of people's experience, and it is the, the lived experience of the group that these are very helpful things. And... There's a couple of things illustrating their genius to me. One of which is they're very flexible. They're very flexible. Um, you can use them when you're 60 days in the program and you can use them when you're 30 years in the program and you'll use them differently. The steps meet us, this is number two, the steps meet us where we are, not where we could be if only we were better. If you're whiny and immature and cranky, that's where you start with the steps. We who are whiny, immature, and cranky, you know, turn it over and do an inventory and, and clean house. Um, they, they meet us where we are. Um, number three, they help us grow up. They help us grow up. A lot of us... Well, again, there are so many images. It, sometimes in recovery world, you'll hear you know, inner children being talked about. I've, I've never uh, been very interested in inner children conversation. Some people like it a lot, and some people find it very helpful. I'm not interested in it at all. I, I don't have any sense of inner child. I, I have a sense of an inner little old man. I think uh, I've always been about 73, uh, even when I was about nine, Uh, I felt very, very old. Um, But if that imagery of inner child is helpful to you, use that. If it's not helpful to you, don't use that. Um, But a lot of us enter our recovery, and we're pretty immature. Sure is true with alcoholics and addicts. They're like six. And part of recovery is not just staying clean and sober; It's growing up. And learning how to blame others, stop blaming others. You know, is mom's fault, is dad's fault? Who cares? Uh, Take responsibility, clean up your messes, pay your bills. One of my friends from North Carolina is a woman named Ellie, and she tells brand new people the first three steps are make your bed and get a job. And she says, we'll talk theology next year. But right now, make your bed and get a job. And it's kind of getting out into living life. Now, you will bump into folks who are fundamentalists. And your basic thing with the fundamentalist is a fundamentalist is sure there's only one way to do things, namely theirs. And you'll find fundamentalist Muslims and fundamentalist Christians and fundamentalist Republicans and fundamentalist AAs. They're rigid and there's no compromise. There's no give and take. Um, And I think coming into recovery, it's all about learning about give and take and developing, and growing, and that there are many roads up Mount Fuji, and there's more than one way to make a meatloaf. I mean, no, there's just one way to make a meatloaf. No, I'm sorry. There's a lot of different ways, and and when we're looking at something like the fourth step, you can say, well, there's a dozen different ways different people have done a fourth step. Find one that works for you. Why don't we try, for instance, doing an autobiography, if that doesn't fly, how about writing about resentments, very sexual stuff, finances. If that doesn't fly, let's do something else. There's roads to progress. There's this book. That, there's different ways people do this. Find something that works. And what working means is it opens up the heart and it opens up the mind and it opens up the gut. The first book that Bill Wilson reads on the subject of spirituality is uh, William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. A series of lectures given at Glasgow University in nineteen four, nineteen five, nineteen six, something like that. And William James was... New England blue blood nobility smart one of those Americans a hundred years ago that was prominent like uh, um, Theodore Roosevelt and Oliver Wendell Holmes and uh, that generation of Americans. Uh, PBS two or three or four months ago did a series on the Roosevelt's uh, Theodore and Franklin and Eleanor, and uh, um, is it Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book a year or two called The Bully Pulpit, and she looks at presidents uh, Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. So this is a hundred years ago, and one of the things that is mentioned, uh, and if you have a, an eye for this kind of detail, you'd notice. Is that both Mr. Taft and Mr. Roosevelt had brothers who drank themselves to death? William James had a brother named Robert who drank himself to death, had another brother named Henry who wrote short stories, and dealt with an impossible father by moving to England. And have you, the Atlantic Ocean is separating you, they got along a little better. Um, <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt's brother, I knew that, that he drank himself to death. What I didn't do until I saw the PBS series was that the brother, Theodore's brother who drank himself to death was Eleanor Roosevelt's father. So Eleanor was an adult child of an alcoholic, and her mother was not interested in really being a mom. Um, uh, Eleanor's mother was a very pretty socialite airhead and uh, Eleanor was not pretty. She was homely and she was awkward and she was very bright. In the in the series you see a picture of Eleanor and she's about 11 years old but it's, it's 100 years ago so the hair was all clumped up uh, they're getting ready to wear these enormous hats which I wish would come back I wish you women would do something about that um, I would like you better if you wore big hats um, <laughs> And you see this picture of this this home, very plain-looking, eleven-year-old girl uh, whose father is now dead and whose mother doesn't like her. And you say to yourself, if there ever was a little girl who needed a few friends, it was that little girl. Alateen could have helped her a lot, and and she develops into a very very strong. Person, we would perhaps even call her and other adult children um, overachievers. <laughs> the footnote: You know that um, among the prominent Americans today, uh, who who have had an alcoholic father. Oh, let me give you a couple of names. It's in the public record. Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, Barack Obama. Children from complicated families sometimes achieve because they have to. The story is told on the West Coast of a, a woman who she's very familiar with family dynamics and alcoholic families, and she's given many, many lectures. And she was giving a talk, and she heard uh, that one of her kids had been hurt at school and was in the local hospital and needed her to come and give permission for some operation. And she leaves the assembly and she runs to the hospital and she uh, wants to see the doctor staff. And there's a couple of doctors and she walks up to the head doctor who will be operating on her kid. And she says to the head doctor, are you an adult child of an alcoholic? (laughs) And the doctor said, why do you want to know that? And she said, because I want the best for my son. Uh, There's something in those dynamics, you know. Well, William James... Um, his father was impossible. And when he was a high school kid, uh, his father said, what are you going to be when you grow up? And William James said, I want to be an artist. And his dad said, there's no money in art. You're going to be a doctor. And to be a doctor 100 years ago, you needed German because German was the language of science. So this 15-year-old boy was sent to Germany to learn German, you little upheaval and uh, learns German and comes back and becomes a, a physician, and then he becomes fascinated by the whole new world of psychology, and then he teaches at Harvard, and he has many, many things to say, and he gives this series of lectures on the varieties of religious experience. Now, a couple of things about the book. Don't read it tired. This is not for nighttime reading before bed. These are lectures, given by a Victorian professor. So it's long, complicated sentences. But if it, but you can read it. Skip the first five chapters. <laughs> Chapter six deals with hitting bottom. And a lot of us who have hit bottoms in different ways uh, can start with that and begin identifying right away. But long sentences, complicated sentences. Um, the title of the book gives it away the varieties of religious experience or spiritual experience. He, um, some therapists, if you said you had a religious experience, some therapists would consider you deluded or delusional or in denial or stupid. James does not do that. He shows great respect to people's experience. And he talks to a lot of women and men who have claimed to have these spiritual experiences, religious experiences, and he says, tell me what you were like and what happened and what it's like now. Does that sound familiar? And what he hears is there's all kinds of ways people experience this. And some are dramatic and sudden, and some are very, very slow over a period of time. And there's all kinds in between, There's a variety. There's not just one way. And in his book, he's not talking about religious theory. He's talking about religious experiences. Tell me what happened. Uh, on his last page, I think, he says, most of the people I've interviewed don't care what they believe as long as it works. James is um, intimately connected with a group of, uh, a way of approaching reality called pragmatism. It's a whole philosophy. It's very American. We like it. Does it work? I don't care if it's true or false or right or wrong or black and white. Does it work? If it works, let's use it. One of the great American pragmatists is a guy Uh, like Thomas Edison. Dabbled, fixed, fussed. Uh, Edison was unfailingly curious. He tries stuff, he tries stuff, he tries stuff. Someone in his laboratory, they were trying, I think it was the electric light bulb or something, and You know, you put these things together and you see what happens and these and some burn out really quickly and some don't go anywhere. Anyway, they did experiment after experiment after experiment after experiment. And after like 40 or 50 of these experiments, the guy said, we haven't learned anything at all. I'm so frustrated. And Edison responded, we've discovered 53 ways this does not work. It's a different attitude. We are learning something. We're learning different ways this works, this doesn't work. Bill Wilson, uh, Thomas Edison offers him a job when he's very young. Because Thomas Edison noticed the way Bill Wilson approached stuff. Let's tinker, let's try, let's see what works. And he offered him a job. Can you imagine being offered a job by Thomas Edison? And Bill Wilson turned it down because what a boring way to spend your life. <laughs> you know, when you want to be a Wall Street guy, a captain of industry. you know. <sighs> um, the key chapter in the AA Big Book is not entitled What It Means. It's entitled How It Works. And a lot of the work of the program is giving people tools. This works for me. This works for me. This helps me. This helps me. See if it helps you. And there's all kinds of tools. And I say some we'll use when we're brand new, and some we'll use when we have some time, and then we go back to some of the brand new. There's always something going on. Keep it fresh. Keep it daily. There's a retreat for priests in recovery every January out in Southern California at the Franciscan Retreat House in Malibu. Um, I'm not complaining about that at all. And we had a, uh, we have a, someone giving points, two talks a day, and then we have a meeting every night, and we have uh, um, uh, time for prayer in the, in the afternoon. We have mass every morning. And it's a way of, of hanging out with uh, other, other clergy. And we've had uh, Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic and Episcopal folks showing up. So a few years ago, our um, presenter was an Episcopal priest named Jeff. And um, here's one of the things he said to us. And I, I, having talked with some of you in the past little while, I thought this might be helpful. You know, when you when you talk in front of a group, especially if you think they're kind of bright, it's uh, it's a little intimidating. Uh, that's why talking to clergy is difficult, or doctors are difficult, or a room full of nurses. That's terrifying. Because <laughs> not only are they smarter than you, they're taking your pulse as you speak. You know, it's there. There are no secrets if nurses are watching um so he he this is a group of priests and and uh a lot of us some are brighter than others but a lot of us uh we can very easily be entertained up here and he said i want to say something to all of you who are bright especially those of you who think you're bright he said surrender first then think Surrender first, then think. What I want to do, especially with the steps, is figure them out first, and then I will do them. But I want to have some expertise first, and an understanding, and a rationale, and a context. And that's a way of being pretty paralyzed. I did that with the fourth step for months um, Rather than actually writing a fourth step, I did research on writing a fourth step, (laughs) which delays you a long time. Surrender first. Then you can think about stuff. And the way a lot of the program work is, is we look back on where we've been and stuff we've been doing, and then we can make some sense out of it. And that's how the 12 steps are written in that past voice. This is stuff we have done. And we found a lot of this very, very useful. Surrender first, then think. Ignatius Loyola put stuff together in the mid-1500s. He's the founder of the Jesuits, and I know there's lots of Catholics in recovery, and and there's a lot of non-Catholics in recovery, and... uh, uh, Catholic stuff can be absolutely baffling uh, for non-Catholics, so I just, just give me two minutes of, of uh, toleration. Um, there's lots of different spiritualities in the Catholic Church. Many, many, many. And outside folks don't see that because they just figure the Archbishop, you know, is in charge of everything. And uh, Catholics never think about the Archbishop at all. Um, but you have different spiritualities. One of the oldest is the Benedictines. The Benedictines have been around for about 1,500 years. And, and they get started in Western Europe uh, as, Western, as civilization in Western Europe collapses. The monasteries get going and the monasteries keep agriculture alive and literacy alive. Um, and, 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 oh, and there's men and women who are Benedictines and it's, it, they follow the rule of Saint Benedict and, and your basic format as a person of faith is to spend your day ora et labora uh, to work and to pray that's how you're going to spend today working and praying notice there's no play in there but that's I'm not a Benedictine um, uh, and when you have about 1500 years to practice ora et labora, you work out a lot of the kinks. You do develop a manner of living that allows human beings to be human beings. So Benedictines, it's a big deal. The Franciscans and the Dominicans are about a thousand years ago. And again, they're, they're, they're monasteries, they're monks. They do different kinds of things. They have different vibrations and rhythms and flavors. Um, the way Dominicans live is nothing the way Franciscans live, uh, and and we try to get along. But Benedictines, Franciscans, and and Dominicans are all monks with monasteries and stable, and and uh, um, in lots of ways they live ordinary life, and I mean that in the best sense of ordinary life, you know, a good. Nothing fancy, solid life. Jesuits come along about 500 years ago. We're the new kids on the block, and we don't follow any of the rules. And um, our founder is is, uh, Ignatius Loyola, who has some similarities to Bill Wilson. Ignatius had spiritual experiences before he knew what they were. And then he had to figure out how do you make any sense out of this stuff. He was an arrogant man. He was a proud man. Um, Spanish nobility. That'll kill you. Don't Don't you know who I am? He had a lot of that. The arrogance, the orgullo. Um, Asking for help almost killed him. But he does ask for help, and he, he has a lot of experiences, and he thinks about them and reflects on them and writes about them. And uh, he's, he's a very interesting fellow. But out of all of his experiences, he comes out with a group of writings that are called the Spiritual Exercises of Ignatius, the Spiritual Exercises. And if you hang out at all with any Jesuit stuff, these get referred to a lot. A series of reflections, a series of meditations, a series of ideas. If you do them consecutively, uh, this could take you between 30 and 40 days. Pretty intensive stuff. I've been through it twice. And the second time I was sober, and I went to a meeting every day because I found that very helpful. And on a bad day, I went to two Here's a couple of things from Ignatius. He's very practical. And one of the things, especially for those of us who are bright, he'll say, don't be reluctant to repeat stuff that works. Repetition, repetition, repetition. I know you've thought about this before. Think about it again. I know you've done this exercise before, do it again. Approach it a little differently. It's not like, no, I read that book and then you throw it out. No, 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 you've read the book one time. Now let's try it again. And, and so you get a familiarity with some stuff and you get a familiarity with the program and I need to remember this because sometimes when we do something like reread the same pages over again, My first instinct is, I've done that. It was bad. And then you find out they completely changed the wording, and this time it's totally fascinating. (laughs) Repetition, repetition, repetition. Don't be afraid of that. That's number one. Number two, regularly in doing any kind of spiritual activity, going to a meeting, making coffee, Cleaning up the room, any kind of spiritual activity. Ask God for help. So it's not just a question of me willpowering my way, but to ask God for help. That I may see, that I may hear. Those are very biblical verbs, hearing and seeing. And if you have a vibration with the Old Testament or the New Testament, you might notice that regularly when women and men pray there, one of the things they're praying is for an ability to hear and an ability to see. Bring that into your program. Help me hear and help me see and help me behave. The power to carry it out. I get such deep insights into what's wrong with you. <coughs> and that's a complete waste of my time and energy. It's, it's my stuff I have to be dealing with. So repetition and and the practicality. And Ignatius will say this about almost anything in terms of tools that we use. If you find something really, really helpful for your spiritual life, use it. And if it's not helpful, don't use it. Well, who's the judge of that? You are. I mean, check it out with a couple people just so you're not talking to yourself late at night in the mirror. <laughs> but you're, some stuff will work and some stuff won't work and some stuff that worked six months ago isn't working now. Use the stuff that really, really helps. I can't go to late night meetings uh, anymore because I fall asleep. Well, then Change. And that doesn't mean stop going to meetings. It means now start going. Instead of the 10 p.m. meeting, it's the 6 p.m. meeting. Or the noon meeting. Or the 5 a.m. meeting. Make those changes. Uh, Use the things that help. C.S. Lewis is another writer, uh, wrote in most of the 1930s and 40s and 50s, did lots of things, English, and one of the things he says is, we read to know we're not alone. We read to know we're not alone. And I remember that if I'm traveling or in, for various reasons I can't get to a meeting or make a phone call, the reading helps. It's sometimes really helpful to carry you know, one of those small little meditation books or some of the program stuff or some stories. Just so I can make that contact, we read to know we're not alone. The tenth step um, has us review our day and when wrong, promptly admitting it. Review your day, when wrong, promptly admitting it. Review the day. What are you looking for? Well, there's all kinds of things to look for. If you are full of self-loathing, you could go through the day looking for every time you've been a jerk. And you can end the exercise with more self loathing. Don't do that. It's not helpful. Instead, what I would suggest is this at the end of the day, take a few moments, ask God for help, and review your day, and look for places during the day where you sensed or felt the presence. Of a power greater than yourself. Review of the day. A moment, uh, a conversation, a walk, when something was going on beyond your own self obsession and whininess. One of my pals, um, long in recovery, sober priest, a Vietnam vet. And when he talks about this, he 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 had a conversation with a bunch of us, and he said when he was in Vietnam, what they had to learn how to do was trust their night vision. What's night vision? Well, it you you're looking straight ahead and you see that which is straight ahead, and you can put all your focus on that which is straight ahead. But night vision asks you to make sure you're also noticing. Everything that's over here on your right and everything that's over here on your left, so your eyes are really very wide, not very narrow. It's night vision. And what you might notice as you're looking straight ahead is something over here moves. That's a little bit like looking for God during the day. Use your night vision. I can do this in airports. I can be very hostile in airports. A lot of people do not know how to get on or off a plane. (laughs) You get on, you get off. But some people will get onto the plane and then they wonder if they want their book. And then they wonder where their book is. And then they block the aisle as they go through their luggage. And I am, if, if I had laser eyes, I would strike them dead at that point. <laughs> but I have seen moments, I mean, I have to watch that, I read really, it. I have seen moments of compassion and gentleness and helping even in those difficult times, and I choose to think that's God at work. I saw this. This this really happened. I'm on a plane years ago, and two guys have an argument. I, I don't know what it was about. Somebody kicked the chair or the chair was going back. It was something, but the guy in front barked and snarled at the guy behind him, and it was a little scary, and it was very loud and uh, Boy, that was embarrassing. I hate that. I mean, I'm in my family, when, whenever that happened, I would just disappear. That's how I handle situations like that. Hold your breath, close your eyes, it'll go away. A couple of minutes pass, five or eight minutes. We've taken off. We're, landed, we're flying somewhere. And the guy who did the barking and the snarling, unleashed his seatbelt, stood up, went back to the man he barked at, and in a loud voice said, I want to apologize for my bad behavior. He said, you did not deserve that, and I was cranky, and I acted like a jerk, and I'm sorry. He said that out loud in front of a group of strangers. And I think that's pretty impressive. <laughs> and I would choose to believe that that man cooperated with whatever movement of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit did. Little things. God is present. Spring! Uh, daffodils, uh, trees in bloom, God is present. A moment of compassion, a moment of kindness. You see a mom taking care of kids, and God is present. So you start to train your eye to look for those experiences. And it's extraordinary how many of those experiences there are. But use your night vision. Don't demand the burning bush. I demand lightning and thunder. Well, who are you to demand anything? (coughs) In the 11th step, Sought through prayer and meditation. Let me just talk a little bit about prayer and meditation and then a little bit on God's will and, and then we'll take a break and then we'll have one more brief session where I'll explain everything to you. Um, if you pray, pray. Pray. Do the best you can. Watch with awe. Watch with awe. Be attentive. If you don't pray, do the best you can. Watch with awe. Be attentive. If you can't pray, do the best you can. Watch with awe. Try to find different ways of showing gratitude. There are so many different ways people pray. Find half a dozen different ones that work for you. It might be with reading, it might be with beads, it might be with chant, it might be doing yoga, it might be... There are so many different ways people pray. Find some that work for you. I pray very well standing up, then stand up. I pray best kneeling down, then kneel down. I like to sit, then you go sit. You know? Sometimes in prayer, we ask for things. The laundry list, you know. Oh, God, I know you are really Santa Claus. Please give me the following 53 things. Some of us do that. Janice Joplin did it best. You know, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. Uh, Yeah, 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 you can do that. You can do that. I need Porsches, I need new houses, I need new cars. You can do all that. Um, Teresa of Avila will say, be careful what you prayed for. (laughs) There are many tears shed over answered prayers. Oh God, give me a relationship, you know. Uh, be more specific please. <laughs> Suddenly you're dating Attila the Hun, you know, and how did this happen? Well, you weren't clear. I was told this, and sometimes we, and we ask for things. We also pray for people, and because and there's lots of people that, that could use some prayer. I think it's a way of joining. I think it's a way of connecting. I think it's a way of building a bridge. And I was taught this uh, years ago when I was very young in all this Jesuit stuff, and they said uh, the principle here is to make your prayer bigger. For instance... Say your favorite auntie is having cataract surgery tomorrow. You want to pray for her. Of course you do. But a lot of aunties are having cataract surgery tomorrow. Pray for all of them. And maybe include in your prayer the doctors and nurses and staff that are taking care of these eye, delicate eye surgeries tomorrow. Your favorite nephews in jail again there's lots of favorite nephews in jail pray for all of them and I don't think you always have to use words when we pray uh, one of my sisters-in-law is from a Mormon family and um, she prays with images a lot and she's very interesting uh, her father was the youngest of 36 children of six wives. It's a very interesting family, needless to say. Um, but what she'll do is, is she'll visualize uh, light. You know, God is light. And she will take the person or person she's praying for, put them in the palms of her hand, and just hold them in the light. She won't tell the light what to do. You know, oh God, fix this, fix that now. She just holds that person in the light and she lets the light just soak into them. I do that a lot when I don't know what words to use. Some people light candles when they pray. Uh, If you like lighting candles, use them. If you don't like lighting candles, don't use them. Some people like burning incense. Again, uh, if you like it, if it helps. If it doesn't help, don't use it. How long to pray for? Well, I know people who pray a lot in the course of one day. You know, half an hour here, an hour here, 45 minutes here, half an hour. I mean, I, I know some people like that. Many of them live in monasteries. Because aura et labora you work and you pray and you can you can do this. I know some people who are very drawn to that. A lot of us are very busy people. And it's hard to set aside an hour or an hour and a half. So here's what I would suggest. Pray as you can instead of Not praying because you can't do it right. (laughs) You might use short prayer throughout the day. Five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. Ten breaths, ten breaths, ten breaths. You can do that in line Um, while the people ahead of you are not moving. You can just take ten breaths. In through the nose, out through the mouth. To make the prayer bigger. And to frequently just say thank you. Annie Lamott has a book out, maybe last year, and she uses three words. Help, thanks, wow. Three pretty good words of prayer. Help! Thanks. Wow. Wow. What a good meeting. What a good meeting. I didn't want to come here tonight. Judge Judy was on. (laughs) I forced myself to come. I'm so glad I was here. I got to hear the best person share. Save my life. If you're like me, you resist sometimes going to meetings. I'm in the habit of going to a couple of meetings, so I don't even question it. I just go. But if I give myself a little breathing room, Judge Judy's on. I think every so often Judge Judy has been my sponsor. I don't know if that's a (laughs) a good thing or a bad thing, but I think I was listening to her more than I was listening to a couple other people. I just report that to you. Praying only for knowledge of God's will for us. What is God's will? It is God's will for each of us to have a life. Go get one. <laughs> Go get one. We ask for the higher power on a regular basis. There's a lot of anxiety about higher power stuff. I mean, that's, I think that's all over the place. Um, Tim M. is a hopeless alcoholic, drug addict, uh, military chaplain, and now on his fourth deployment. Sober a long time, fascinating human being. And Tim was talking once to our group of priests in recovery, and Tim said, you know, so many of us, we, we get anxious or nervous when we're to turn our will and our lives over to the care of a power greater than ourselves. And he paused and he said, many of us had no hesitation when we turned our will and our lives over to the care of a power lower than we were. Lower powers we had no trouble with at all. Oh, dope, cocaine, booze, let's go. Oh, look, roulette. Um, But a higher power, we get very anxious. There's a moment in the New Testament uh, Jesus is doing something. He frequently is. And uh, somebody runs up and says, Help. And um, Jesus says, Do you believe? And the person says, Yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I think that's a pretty good prayer for a lot of us. Um, help me believe better. Help me I want to believe as a man who's 68 years old, I don't want to believe as an 11-year-old who's mad. I want to approach this as an adult because I want to live as an adult. I want to have relationships with people which are adult relationships, and that includes my higher power. One of the more recent Al-Anon... Text is all about loss, transforming our losses. If you love an alcoholic, if you love an addict, there's going to be losses. The gorilla is ferocious. Uh, There's cause and effect. Uh, Real things happen in real time. We lose some opportunities, we lose some chances, we lose some people. Boy, that's tough. Maybe I'm 10 or 12 years in recovery and into Al-Anon more. And I start to learn about grief and loss. Some from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I got to spend a week with her in New Mexico. Um... On a life death transition workshop. It was very, very powerful. We all get to die. We all get to die. Uh, let me be the first one to tell you that. Um, and um, there's a process. And part of grief and part of loss and part of dying is being numb, shock. Part of loss and grief is being angry. Part of it is sadness. There's a lot of different things that go on. And I think lots of people I know who are so angry all the time seem to be stuck in their grief. They just can't get beyond it. Mary Oliver, contemporary American poet, um, has written about many things. I, I like her ever so much. Uh, she likes the great outdoors. She's a great outdoorsy person. Uh, she likes rivers and trees and animals. She's very pro-dog. She has an entire book on dog poems, if you're one of those people. Um, someone said, you know, there, there's all kinds of divisions. There's there's men and women, and there's, you know, uh, uh, United Statesers and Canadaersers, <laughs> And there's people from Illinois and people from Wisconsin and there's Republicans and there's Democrats. But the real division is there are dog people and there are cat people. And that that may be true. Uh, Although I like them both. So she put a book of poems together and called it Thirst. Thirst. And she says, in my sleep I dreamed this poem. In my sleep, I dreamed this poem, and she entitled it On the Uses of Sorrow. On the Uses of Sorrow. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift on the uses of sorrow. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this to was a gift. The way she wrote the, po- the poem, it is, it is grammatically um, ambiguous. In that first sentence, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness, there's no comma. So it could be someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness, or someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. And those are among the things we can share. In Al-Anon, we can speak the unspeakable. And sometimes the only thing there is to do is sit there and be there. The powerlessness and the unmanageability. One of the, the women I know on the West Coast, this is, this is perhaps the scariest thing I've ever heard at an Al-Anon meeting. Uh, she's a mom, right? And she's got kids and she's, she loves marrying alcoholics. Um, <laughs> And her kids are impossible, impossible. But we all have cell phones, and that's a way of keeping in touch, right? And if you're talking to your kid on the cell phone, you're in charge, right? And she was talking to her 16-year-old son on his cell phone as he jumped in front of an onrushing train. He lived. And he's alive today. And he's a very normal 27-year-old boy. Young man. He's a daddy. But at 16, it was... And she realized the only thing she can do with her children every time they leave the house is turn them over to God's good care and to stop the worry and the obsessing and the fretting and the analyzing and reanalyzing and reanalyzing. But that was a box of darkness. There's lots of movies out there that deal with alcoholism and addiction. Uh, I'm going to mention three of them and then we can take a little break. Um, In 1939, uh, Lost Weekend was made into a film, A a book by Jackson And it's about a periodic alcoholic. And uh, Ray Milland plays the alcoholic and he wins Best Actor. It's a black and white film. It's pretty extraordinary. The book does not have a happy ending. The movie does because Hollywood has to have happy endings, don't you know that? And Jane Wyman plays the wife And at the end of the movie, the love of a good woman shapes him up. (laughs) Probably caused a million alcoholic marriages just that year alone. (laughs) Uh, Early 1950s, uh, come back little Sheba. Come back, little Sheba. Burt Lancaster, a very young, handsome Burt Lancaster, plays uh, an alcoholic who's sober for a year. And Shirley Booth plays his wife. She gets best actress for this role. She's infuriating. She needs 100,000 Al-Anon meetings today. She is worried, sick. She just can't She's so full of love for this man, and she's so crazy, and she just runs around. It it just it makes my skin crawl. The movie is so jumpy, Uh, but you do. He he goes to an AA meeting to receive his year medallion, and she's there with him, fidgeting and jumping like some of us in Al Anon do. Um, And uh, the guy that runs the meeting is Jack Webb, (laughs) (laughs) Lieutenant Joe Friday. 1961, 1962 when a man loves a woman no, excuse me, Days of White and Roses the days of wine and roses black and white film, Jack Lemmon uh, Lee Remick and this is a real film about alcoholism, it's not pretty it doesn't have a happy ending and at the end of the film, I mean, she she's doesn't like alcohol. And he's a drunk, charming, impossible. And he asks her out and she finally agrees. And uh, can I get you a drink? I don't like the taste of alcohol. He said, what do you like? And she said, chocolate. I'll take anything with chocolate. And he said, I'll be right back. And he brings her a Brandy Alexander, which is brandy and chocolate. And it just begins for both of them. And they go through fun, fun plus problems, problems. And the end of the film, he's sober. He goes to a meeting. Uh, Quincy, uh, Jack Klugman is his AA sponsor. And I just burst into tears whenever... I see the AA guys going into hospital institutions and taking Jack Lemon to his first meeting. But she can't stay sober. She doesn't want to stay sober. And the movie ends with Jack Lemon and their little daughter and she's going off into the San Francisco fog. It's one of those films where it's not, it's a discussion film, I guess, but it's not a happy, let's feel good kind of movie but it's a very realistic view at what alcoholism does to the lives of some wonderful people, but it's hard to watch. 28 Days. Sandra Bullock. It's wonderful. It's fun. It's bright. It's in color. I like almost anything Sandra Bullock does, except I thought Gravity was a stupid film, but that's an outside issue. Um, LAUGHTER but it's, it's in treatment for 28 days, and there's a lot of recovery stuff in there. And by now, so many people have been in recovery that they can spoof some things in recovery. Uh, and you know, there are some inside jokes, wink, like they're in and there's people chanting. And they say uh, they chant because they hate the serenity prayer. Well, that's a very funny line, I think. But if you straight over the people who are not as deep as I am. Um, (laughs) clean and sober with Michael Keaton clean and sober with Michael Keaton now he's usually a very very funny guy dead serious in this film and again it's a treatment thing and it's full of information and full of recovery and you see this is a life and death business and the last film I'll mention is um, oh, and there's, there's a, uh, <sighs> "Saving Mr. Banks," which is the film out a year or two ago about the making of Mary Poppins, the Disney film, "Saving Mr. Banks." And, you know, I, I, it, it, Mary Poppins is a kid's film and, and you have Mary Poppins coming and there are these children and, and all this stuff is going on. And, and the author, the woman that writes the, the story, is pretty impossible. And it's halfway through or two-thirds of the way through that you find out that her father drank himself to death and Mary Poppins has not come to save the kids. Mary Poppins has come to save the family. It's it's a wonderful film in terms of recovery. It really is. And there are some light-hearted moments. And, and um, uh, the woman that plays Mary Poppins, of course, is rigid and impossible, like, like some of us are <laughs> on a bad day. And the last film I'll mention is uh, uh, When a Man Loves a Woman. And that's Meg Ryan. And uh, a very young... Anthony Garcia. Andy Garcia, rather. Andy Garcia. Now, in the film, it, it's about a family, and, and it's Meg Ryan's the drunk. And the first time you watch the film, you spend all your time looking at Meg Ryan. She's very easy to watch. She's so good, and she's so beautiful, and she's so alive. There's two little girls... But the second time you watch the film, watch Andy Garcia. Because the film's about him. He, who is an airline pilot, smart, handsome, good, dedicated, noble, cannot help the woman he loves. And Her alcoholism develops while he's been going around being successful and busy. I met a physician like this some years ago. He practices in Salt Lake City. But he, the physician who is saving so many, completely missed his wife's alcoholism. And when she came to tell him she needed treatment, he was flabbergasted. How could I have missed this? Well, easily. Because it's cunning, baffling, powerful, and sneaky. And a lot of drunks are sneaky. Anyway, Andy Garcia goes to meet Meg Ryan in treatment. And he says, tell me what's going on. And she says, I'm scared all the time. I drink all the time. He says, I don't see you drink. Where do you? She says, I have bottles hidden everywhere. So he goes back home and he starts looking through cabin. He finds bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles. And so it's, it's trash pickup day and he takes them outside and he just starts throwing them in the trash. And the little girl comes out, the older sister comes out, and she says to him, you have to wrap them in newspaper. <laughs> Mommy always wraps them in newspaper. And what Andy Garcia suddenly realizes is where he has missed everything. She has missed nothing. Oh, it's a magnificent film. He goes to Al-Anon and can't stand it. He can't stand it. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) And then he goes back to Al-Anon. And the movie ends, he's sharing, you know, and he says, you know, how can I love someone I cannot control? (laughs) and help, and manage, and fix. And the movie ends, and they're having a conversation. And it doesn't say what's going to happen next, but the door is open. The door is open. So that's a lot. How's this? Let's take about a 15-minute break. And then I have a few more things to say, and I'm happy to answer questions if people have questions, and then we can all go home. Okay? Fifteen-minute break.